Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelly Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. Today, we're welcoming General James Mukoyama to the show. First and foremost, before we go anywhere, I wanted to thank you for your service, obviously. Uh, General Mukoyama is a retired Major General with the U.S. Army. He is the President and Executive Director at Military Outreach USA which is a faith-based organization dedicated to serving our military and their families through a network of military-friendly churches. General Mukayama is also a partner at Enabled Enterprises, a dynamic, groundbreaking business providing empowerment, independence, training, and emotional support to our veterans. Welcome to the show, General. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Patrick and Shelley. It's nice uh, to be here. Jim, can you tell us a little bit more about Military Outreach so our listeners are aware of your organization? Yes, thank you for asking. Military Outreach USA is a faith-based 501c3, and our mission is to demonstrate the love, compassion, and healing of Jesus to our military community and their families. Now, we do not proselytize we will serve anyone. Our criteria is simply that they've worn the uniform of the United States Armed Forces or that they're family members thereof. We stress the families equally. We have two major programs because frankly, there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of nonprofit organizations out there purporting to support our veterans. And so, we realize that we cannot be everything to everyone. So we have two major programs. But the concept, I should add, the concept is that uh, we have a network of houses of worship of all faiths and NGOs and other community service organizations, such as the American Legion, Veterans of Foreign Wars, Lions Clubs, Rotaries. We even have high schools in uh, middle schools that support us. And when I say support us, it's through our two programs. The one program is helping homeless veterans. These are veterans that are working with social workers from the VA, the Department of Veterans Affairs. So they have been vetted. That means that they're legitimate veterans because in order to get benefits from the VA, they have they have to go through a, an application process. We don't have the staff to do that. So we let the VA do that for us. And these are veterans that are coming off of the streets, out of homelessness, and the social workers give them or get them into, when they're, once they're stabilized, they get them into what they call permanent housing, which is really a one-bedroom apartment subsidized by a HUD-VASH voucher. The problem is that VA is not funded for anything beyond the social worker therapy and giving them the keys to the apartment. Just remember, the first time you moved into an apartment, you kind of need stuff like (laughs) toilet paper, 
uh, Lysol, paper towels, things like that. And so we saw that need and we went to our network and we asked them, could you make a collection? And we gave them a list of what we call move in essential items. So our churches and, and organizations make collections from their congregations uh, and from their members. And then we coordinate getting those to the VA social workers. And then the social workers distribute these items to the veterans. We, as an organization, don't really touch the end user. We don't know who they are because of privacy and all that, but we don't really need that. We just want to help them. Uh, the other part of that program, by the way, the Veterans Exiting Homelessness Program, uh, is what we call Beds for Vets. These homeless veterans are put into a one-bedroom apartment. They don't have a bed. They might have a sleeping bag or a cardboard box or a blanket. So we go to our organizations again, and we say, hey, listen, you know, if you, if you uh, don't want to go through the trouble of having a collection and all of that, money is good. And so we would ask them to donate money. And all of the money that's donated to that program goes to buying beds, pillows, and pillowcases, and sheets. And by the way, we started this program in 2016 with a memorandum of agreement with the Department of Veterans Affairs that was signed by the Secretary of Veterans Affairs at that time, which recognized a military outreach as a partner in this program. So since 2016, we have provided over 2,400 beds. And not only in uh, military outreach, by the way, as we're headquartered in the Chicagoland area here in a suburb called Northbrook, uh, at a church or a, a, actually it's a Lutheran Charities that has let us use their address. We work out of our homes, actually. We're pretty lean and mean as an organization. <laughs> and uh, if you go to our website, which, by the way, is militaryoutreachusa.org, I hope you'll find it to be fairly interesting. But uh, we're doing this on a shoestring, I got to tell you. So we buy the beds. And, and not only that, we have in our Moving Essential Items program, We've provided over 1.2 million items serving about 50,000 veterans and family members. Because keep in mind, a lot of these veterans, unfortunately, also have family members uh, with them that come off the street. So, and there are a lot of female veterans. So that's one of our two major programs. The second one is something I'm extremely passionate about and that is to reduce the unacceptable suicide rate among our veterans and first responders. We've added the first responders to our program. And there's controversy as to what the numbers really are, but a few years ago, the VA did, did uh, validate that 22 plus veterans per day were dying by suicide. That's almost one per hour. It's 
our mission to reduce that number. Now, how do we, how are we doing that? Uh, number one, through education. Uh, we have published a book that's on our website. And if you go to our website, you go to resources and you'll see moral injury and the cover of the book is there. And the title of the book is, They Don't Receive Purple Hearts because this is not a physical wound. And so we published that book actually in 2015, but it's still a classic regarding the, what moral injury is. Now you'll have your viewers listening to this saying, well, what is he talking about? Because I'm sure they've, they've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder. They've heard of traumatic brain injury, TBI. Uh, maybe even they've heard of military sexual trauma, but very few people have heard of moral injury. Uh, I, I go out throughout the nation speaking at medical colleges, at psychological association meetings, and it's surprising the number of people, professionals I'm talking about, who are not aware of it. Although it is picking up steam in uh, academia because of the research that they can uh, they can advantage. And so moral injury, very simply, here's my 30 second pitch. From the time you're born until you're 18 years old, you develop a personal moral code. It's a sense of right or wrong. Uh, it could come from your family, your religion, your friends, your community, whatever, you develop a personal moral code. And then you join the military and you learn a warrior code. That warrior code is superimposed on your personal moral code and in fact transforms it somewhat. Then you might have to participate in activities or operations that violate your personal moral code, such as killing. You don't have to be the person that pulls the trigger. You could be a witness or you could feel that you should have prevented it or you could follow another unit and you see that innocent civilians have been killed or you handle body parts. At that time, you sustain a so-called invisible wound of war, not physical, you can't see it. And it's called moral injury. But in military operations, we're constantly moving from point A to point B to point C. So you don't have time to stop and reflect on this stuff. So what do you do? You bury it and it becomes unresolved guilt and shame. Then you return to the States and let's say, you know, you, you come back to Chicago or Seattle or wherever to a community that doesn't understand what you've been through and it bubbles up to the surface. And unless you have a strong coping mechanism for that, bad stuff happens, anger, guilt, depression, suicide. Now it's the position of Military Outreach USA that the main approach to moral injury is not a medical doctor with prescription drugs. It's the forgiveness and grace of a moral authority, a loving God, the counseling of clergy and sensitive therapists and the support of a community offering hope and help. And I can't tell you how many times I've, I've given that presentation and you know, in speeches and 
I see veterans in the audience break down and cry, or they'll come up to me afterwards because they've been told they have PTSD and they know they didn't have it. They've been told they have TBI and the therapies didn't help. But when I hear me talk about moral injury, they get it. It's like a light bulb goes off. Now we can, once you know what it is, then we can start helping. It's like any addiction or problem. You know, if you don't know what it is, how are you going to fix it? And so that's the first step. So education is one of the things that we do. And because Frankly, I'm, I'm reaching out to the families <laughs> because a lot of veterans, unfortunately, we have this military mindset that, you know, you got to be strong. You can't show weakness. You got to suck it up. And they won't admit that they have a problem. So who is it that gets them to go to the VA? It's their wives or significant others or family members. And so if I can educate them, that's effective. And so the other thing we do, we've just joined with another organization called Stand By Me Heroes. And very simply stated, Stand By Me Heroes are what we call foxhole soul counselors. Soul counselors. These are not uh, psychologists. They're not, they're not social workers. They're not licensed. These are primarily combat veterans who have walked in these shoes or boots and both male and female. And uh, basically we have one-on-one peer to peer relations. And uh, we call our offices Dunkin' Donuts. And we just meet with these veterans. We talk, we listen, primarily initially we listen. And then we establish relationships. And once we are able to do that, then we can try to get them help. So that's Military Outreach USA. Everything we do, by the way, is free of charge. We do not charge anything for our services. Uh, We do not receive government funding. We uh, basically exist through the generosity of private donors and uh, some foundations. So we are very blessed as an organization. We've been doing this for about 10 years now. I was in the financial services industry at one time and I walked away from that because this was, this is my calling. And once you find your calling and you live it, it doesn't get any better than that. And so that's, that's Military Outreach USA. Thank you, General. You're truly an inspiration on on for so many reasons. Obviously, your commitment to fellow Americans who have worn the uniform is is clearly an inspiration to everyone. So I encourage everyone, uh, General, if you would, share the URL again. Sure. It's militaryoutreachusa.org. Check it out. You've got the ability to make a donation, schedule a donation on a on a regular basis, everything counts in conversations I've had with General here. He, he, like he said, he's very lean. So anything that gets uh, contributed is going to actually end up in somebody's room and help them out and get them off the street. 
and get them back on their feet. So uh, again, we, we applaud you for all your efforts. Um, if you got some time, I would like to dig into some of your other philosophies around leadership. I think leadership is a critical component of innovation and, and change in organizations. But before I get to that, I, I know we gave you a quick intro. I, I did want to cover a little bit about your background. You're a Chicago guy, right? Born and raised, right? Yeah, I, I, I grew up in, I'm a city guy. I'm unapologetic for that because when I grew up in the 50s and uh, this was a really good time. And, you know, Chicago primarily is a city of ethnicities. Uh, different ethnic neighborhoods. And uh, I grew up in Logan Square, which is primarily Polish, German, Italian, a few Jews, and my family. <laughs> we, we were the token Asians. And, and it was, I, I mean, I'm true about that. I went to an elementary school of nine, grammar school of 900 kids. My brother and I, you know, we were the only Asians in the school. And so I grew up you know, in the midst of, of uh, a great melting pot of different ethnicities. And so we never owned a home. We grew up in tenant apartments. And, you know, I never felt poor. And the reason I never felt poor is that we had a strong nuclear family and we had a strong faith foundation. Our church was only three blocks away from our house. Every Sunday, my grandparents, my parents, and my brother and I would put on our Sunday best clothes and we would walk to church together. And, you know, everything centered around family, family and my faith. And I was in Cub Scouts. I was in Boy Scouts. I was in the choir. And it was a very strong Time. I never, in fact, it might sound funny to people, but my father immigrated from Japan and he strongly inculcated into my brother and I to be proud of our Japanese heritage, you know, going back, you know, 3,000 years of unbroken lines of the imperial family and all that stuff. But he came to America for freedom and opportunity. And he told us, the most important thing you need to do is to be a good citizen and to contribute to your community and be proud of being of your Japanese heritage, but be prouder of being an American. So I led what's called, for a lot of your audience won't even know who Norman Rockwell was, but Norman Rockwell was a very famous artist who painted the covers of the Saturday Evening Post, which probably a lot of people don't even know that either, <laughs> but was one of the most popular magazines in the country. And his popularity was derived from his clear depiction of American life. Just a common guy. And uh, one of my favorites is the famous Thanksgiving dinner where the the mother or grandmother is standing there with the Thanksgiving plate and everybody's sitting around the table, you know, ready before the food is being served. 
that was my life. I, I led a Norman Rockwell life. And, you know, he was very patriotic. He showed scenes of veterans coming back from World War II. He showed common people, the plumbers, the carpenters, the auto mechanics. So I truly have led a Norman Rockwell life. And I understand that. And I'm very grateful for that. So that's kind of my background. I went I went to the uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, but and once again, a lot of younger people don't know that there was the University of Illinois in Chicago was at Navy Pier. And it was only for the first two years, freshman and sophomore years, in order to get your baccalaureate, you had to go down to Champaign-Urbana and finish your degree. So that's what I did. And then later on, they they put up University of Illinois in Chicago, this so-called Circle Campus. Circle Campus, I remember. In, in fact, my son graduated from that. So uh, we kept the Illini tradition going. And so that's my story about my background, where I came from. We, we were very blessed. I have absolutely no complaints about my life here in Chicago. One of uh, Norman Rockwell's paintings, lesser known, not, not as well as some of the others. One of my favorite is he has a, a painting that he made of the Chicago Cubs. Have you ever seen that where it's like three guys sitting on a bench they are kind of slumped down and all the fans <laughs> are laughing at them. And it's like, oh, you you caught it. Like if, if you were a Cub fan in pre-2015-16, uh, that is that is the life of a Cub fan of like watching these guys just getting their butts kicked. So, and that that picture must have been the 1950s, right? 1960s. Yeah, makes make sense. Yeah, they had good players. They never just never had good teams, right? You know, and and I lived on the North Side. However, I was a White Sox, oh, and I'm no. a lifelong White Sox fan. People not from Chicago don't understand. There's no such thing as a Chicago baseball fan. You're either a Cubs fan or you're a White Sox fan. And when people on the North side found out I was a Sox fan, they say, how could you do that? And I said, I am a discerning baseball fan. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will. I'm from the Northwest suburbs. uh, And I will say living on the Southwest side and near the South side, there are a lot of Cub fans on the South side. Uh, It's a a terribly kept secret of, and then from the Sox fans standpoint, from my perspective, there's two types of Sox fans, the ones that really love the Sox and, and they're generally great baseball fans. They love baseball. And then there's the others that just hate the Cubs. Right? <laughs> and so it's not so much they know about baseball or even care about the Sox. They just really hate that. You know, the Cub fans have a lot of fun. That really bothers yeah. them where it's like, oh, it's just a big outdoor party. It's like, that's right. Have you met baseball? It's kind of slow, right? Like, <laughs> having a party during a game sounds like a pretty good idea. Well, I, I, the other thing I wanted to touch on before moving on is your list of accomplishments. And even in addition to what you, or you've already shared with us is, is inspiring, awe striking. I, I really, there's, there's not a big enough word for it. Aside from distinguished service medal, a silver star, Legion of merit, three bronze stars, purple heart, parachute badge, expert infantryman's badge and a combat infantryman's badge. And I know we're not going to be recording this from a visual standpoint, but I can see uh, what's behind you. And that is amazing. 
uh, what you've accomplished. So uh, really, I, I think I want to make sure our listeners understand your level of accomplishment as a one, as a major general, right, which upon on its own, right, uh, but having served as a platoon leader in the DMZ in the Republic of Korea, as an infantry company commander in the 9th Division uh, in Vietnam, youngest general officer in the entire United States Army in 1987, and then subsequently the youngest major general three years later. Uh, and in 1989, you became the first Asian American in the history of the United States to command an Army division. I mean, it's 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 amazing what you've accomplished. And to think you didn't get to your passion in life until 10 years ago, you are no slouch at achieving at things that are not your life's passion. I got to tell you. Well, you, you, you're so kind to mention that. But I have to point out that I had great NCOs or non-commissioned officers who made me look good. And I had <laughs> commanders who mentored me and they didn't cut my head off when I screwed up as a junior officer and I had my fair share. So I, I fully recognize that I've been so blessed in life and, but God was preparing me all, all of that time. And subsequent to my retirement, which by the way, it's hard to believe was uh, 95. So quite a long time ago, but you know, he was preparing me for military outreach USA because I also am an Agent Orange survivor. Uh, for those of you not familiar with Agent Orange, it was a defoliant that was used during the Vietnam War. The bottom line was that the Viet Cong and the NVA, our enemy, used the foliage in uh, along roads and highways and other places to ambush us. So one of the ways we kind of addressed that was by spraying chemicals that killed the foliage so they couldn't hide there. Well, unbeknownst to us, there were carcinogens in them. And so the Vietnam veterans and their descendants, unfortunately, are reaping that. And there are cancer, heart problems, diabetes. So I had a heart attack. I have diabetes type 2. My kidneys failed. I had the I did dialysis and I got a kidney transplant. Uh, but I have to tell you, the kidney transplant, uh, I got a donor. And the donor was our daughter. But our daughter is not our biological daughter. We adopted her 30 years prior. And yet she was a match. Wow. So when people ask me, how can you say every day is a great day? Uh, I am living on borrowed time from my experiences in Vietnam. There were literally times I didn't know if I was going to be alive the next moment or see the next sunrise. And God pulled me through all of that. Uh, I came back to the States. I married a wonderful woman. We just celebrated our 51st wedding anniversary. She gets the gold sticky star for putting up with me. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't, I frankly have not been the best husband. I've had anger management problems and, and my wife is really, she's an angel. She let my parents, not her parents, live with us in the same house for 22 years until they died. Wow. And she was their caregiver. So 
you know, I mean, this is big payback time for me. I got to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I've just been so blessed. And my wife is Korean, by the way. Anybody who knows the relationship between Korea and Japan, the odds of a Japanese guy marrying a Korean woman on a scale of one to 100 is a minus 50. And yet God put us together. So I just have so much to be grateful for. And, you know, when you're grateful, that gives you joy. And uh, I don't fear anything. I, I have, because of my faith, I knew when I was in Vietnam, I never worried about dying in Vietnam because I knew if the Lord was going to take me, I'd be in a better place. And what I did, actually, what I worried about the most was as a company commander, my responsibilities to my men, because if I made a mistake, it would cost lives. The most precious commodity any leader has entrusted to them, the lives of subordinates. So I don't fear. I have no fear. Uh, and when you don't have fear, you have joy. And that's why I'm so positive. That's a great point. I think uh, some fear, um, happiness in the future, joy in the future is hope. Uh, somebody said the other day to me. And so I, I to that point of right, how do you how do you have hope? And part of it is it's expecting for things to be better in the future. Right. And I think it's an important lesson, especially nowadays, where I think there's so many messages that younger people are inundated with about the negativities of, you know, the future and, and, and fomenting fear and that idea of, of, you know, pain, right? Pain in the future is, is fear, right? And joy in the, in the future is hope. Um, and I think it's an important lesson. And one thing I did want to touch on, uh, you mentioned, you know, your subordinates making you look good right um yeah. and i and i know that's that's not exactly 100 true but i understand your humility but at the same point in time in previous conversations you and i had you have a, a very clear methodology and i think it's important when we intend to lead people through change we intend to lead people through through conflict whether that is kinetic or non-kinetic conflict of changing what we're doing right which is innovation right we're going to stop doing something to start doing something else. It's a journey of sorts, right? And we've got to get people motivated. But at the same point in time, we have to be clear about what we're going to ask of people when we're on this journey. And I think some of the things that you've shared before about what you do to create clarity for the people who report to you, I think would be of really great value to all of our listeners, if you don't mind sharing that. Well, of course not. First of all, when I took command of a unit, I would visit that unit and I would bring everybody together, all the ranks, everybody, sit them down. And I'd say, okay, here are my expectations. You know, because as, as leaders, you know, in fairness to your subordinates, they have to understand what your expectations are. And so, you know, you not only cast your vision, but in my case, I, I would sit them down and I would say, first of all, I'm expecting you to be individually fit. And there are four elements of individual fitness. Number one is a physical fitness. Now, keep in mind, I'm, I was talking to soldiers at that time and we have a special you know, occupation. 
but frankly, everybody should be very aware of their physical fitness. Uh, number two is a professional fitness. I expected them to know their jobs, their specialties, whatever it is, IT or, you know, they had to stay current with what was going on in, in their area of expertise. Uh, number three was an attitude fitness. It's very easy to complain about, I don't have enough equipment, I don't have enough personnel, I don't have enough funding, uh, but a positive attitude can overcome a lot of that. The final element of individual fitness, which I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, is a spiritual fitness. Our nation was built on certain precepts and principles that have resulted in the blessings that we have had to be the most successful nation in the history of the world. And we are also the most generous, I might add. So, and that last element is the foundation for everything. I told my, my subordinates that whatever your faith is, I'm, I wasn't pushing any particular faith. I said, but whatever faith you have, cling to it fiercely because in times of crisis, you're gonna need it. And so that's the individual fitness. But then I talked to my leaders and I said, there are three elements of leadership. I'm a, I'm a simple-minded guy. I try to boil <laughs> things down, you know? And so I Nobody's said- Nobody's buying that. Nobody. <laughs> three, three words. Number one, example. Number two, caring. Number three, balance. So what do I mean by example? Well, obviously I mean personal example. Instead of, you know, do as I say, you actually do as I do. And so you got to walk the talk. And, and uh, subordinates will know a fake leader a mile away. They can smell that. And so uh, you got to lead by personal example. And how do you do that? You do that by fulfilling those four elements of individual fitness that I mentioned. And you, you, know, you don't ask your subordinates to do anything that you yourself would not be willing to do. So number two is caring. Before we move on to that, General, if you don't mind me, I, I really think that there's a really important element there of, of the fitness of, you know, you, to walk the talk, to do that, to have the courage to do what your moral code, as you said before, to do the right thing requires that you are mentally, spiritually, uh, you know, co technically competent and, and fit for the job. So it's like, it's easy to say those things, but the how is you've really got to practice this stuff to get yourself to a fitness level. Because one of my, my favorite quotes from, from uh, Vince Lombardi is that fatigue will make cowards of us all. And so when, when you're, you're not fit and these moments where you really, the test happens, you never get to pick that. It, it picks when, and usually the worst time is when you, you have that test of walking the talk and having the courage. And, and there's a person we, I met with just yesterday who runs a very large VC firm. And his thing about leaders was simply, they've got to have the courage, but courage also requires fitness and, and readiness and, and practice and preparedness. And I really love how you, you touch on that with the idea of the fitness has to be there for you to lead by example. 
Yeah, you know, I, I should add on the spiritual part of it, an important element of that is ethics and values. And uh, without morality, you you are inherently a weak leader. And I didn't tell you this story before, but I have to ask for your indulgence. My career came to a roaring halt in the 90s when I testified before Congress about something the Army was doing that was not in the best interest of our country. You can look it up. It's been mentioned in books. And the bottom line is that I had a choice. We all have choices in life. And I had a choice of either being quiet or standing up for my troops. And frankly, when I was in Vietnam, I knew that the generals and admirals were not standing up for us. We were we were fighting with two hands tied behind our backs. And I swore to myself, if I ever got to a place in the future where there was a choice between my soldiers and my career, there would be no choice. I knew what I would have to do. And by the way, a year later, I was done in the army. But I do it again in a heartbeat. Uh, there was a funnier episode uh, when it comes to ethics. I was on the Oprah Winfrey show. And Oprah asked me to come on to be on a panel of Japanese Americans. This was in the uh, late 80s when our economy was in the pits. The Japanese economy was booming and everybody was blaming the Japanese. And there was actually a Detroit, in Detroit, there was a Chinese guy who was mistaken for Japanese and he was beaten to death with baseball bats by automobile workers because they thought he was Japanese. So Oprah had this show, it was called About Japan Bashing. And I was invited because I was the highest ranking Asian American in the armed forces at the time, who also happened to be, you know, American of Japanese ancestry. So I was asked to go on the show and I said, absolutely. And I'll wear my uniform and I'll go on the show. Well, the army did not want me to wear my uniform in essence. And I said, you gotta be kidding me. I said, I take my responsibility as a role model very seriously. And there are people in this nation that do not understand. We have Asians that are admirals and generals in our armed forces. This is an opportunity to demonstrate equal opportunity that we have in our nation. I'm not passing it up. And now the guy who called me was the chief of public affairs from the army. He was a one-star general. Well, I happened to be a two-star general at the time. <laughs> so I, I just said, thank you for calling. I understand, you know, you're doing this. This is your job. But I got to tell you, I'm going to wear my uniform unless I get a direct order, you know, from the secretary of the army or, you know, somebody in my chain, chain of command, which I did not get, by the way. So I wore my uniform. I did pretty, I did pretty well. And in <laughs> fact, I, there was a federal judge who saw me on the show and he wrote a letter to the secretary of defense, who was Dick Cheney at the time. And he said, you know, this General Mukiyama did a really great job for you guys. You should be proud of him, you know. And so that kind of ended that controversy. But anyway, 
getting back, I'm sorry, that was a, a no, little great. Uh, side story. <laughs> As you were telling that story, all I could think of was Mel Brooks in History of the World when he said, <laughs> it's good to be the king, you know? <laughs> so I, I, so after I talked to my soldiers, you know, then I go into leadership. I told you example, caring and balance. So personal examples, number one. Number two is caring. Caring for your subordinates. You always have to remember where you came from. Uh, you need to understand that the most important element of leadership is serving others. You are there to serve your subordinates. You're not there for them to serve you. And the best example of that was Jesus, who said, I came here not to be served, but to serve others. So now how do you care for your your subordinates? Well, you got to learn about them. You have to talk to them. You have to get to know them. Uh, you, you have to show them you have an interest in them. They're not just your underlings to do your bidding. You're there to work together as a team to accomplish whatever the organization's mission is, but you also want to help them individually. You want to encourage them professionally on their professional development. And frankly, you know, if you get to know your, your subordinates, you also find out when they're going through a personal crisis and you can help them through that. Uh, the final element of leadership is is balance. And for you've got a lot of people on, on your podcast where highly successful people are getting into positions that will get them in that direction. I can only caution them about as you get promoted or as you, uh, you know, you get these perks and people treat you differently. And that kind of feels pretty good. And in fact, it can get addictive. And what happens is you, you ignore your families, your personal relationships, your health. So you have to be extremely careful to maintain that balance. I used to tell my, my subordinates that you're not doing me any good if you're going through a divorce. And I cautioned them to really maintain a good, healthy balance in their lives. So that's, that's my leadership philosophy. It's great stuff. I think it's, it's, it's the foundation of, of a healthy team on so many levels on the caring side. You know, I know you were on uh Jocko Williams show earlier this year, I believe, or maybe it was last year. One of the things that I took off of that show that I really, the caring component of, if you've got some challenges with performance on your team, uh, one of the things that Jacko had brought up was like really focus on like, what's your relationship with that person, right? Do they worry about letting you down, right? Have have you developed a relationship where, right, they, they really would feel bad if they let you down? Because I think we, we struggle with accountability all the time on team performance of like, oh, we're holding people accountable. But the truth of the matter is, you know, do they care? about the team? Do they care about you? And as a leader, that's part of your job. Again, like you said, as an example, right? So you're, mm -hmm. you're walking the talk again about, I'm going to care about you first, and then I'm going to hope that you care about me and the rest of the team. 
But if we don't demonstrate that, and I think a lot of people are, have a misperception about leadership in that regard of like, I'm going to be very, you know, paternal and very, you know, where it's like a, a vuncular might be a better strategy. And I, I'm just showing off my Latin words at this point. Okay. So I'll tell you, Father Bowles are at St. Vitus really proud of my Latin usage right here, right now. So, uh, but it, it really is, it's a little bit more avuncular and, and like being that, uh, you know, understanding and, and being there for people. And my dad, St. Vitus is one of the high schools that's in our network. Nice. And, and they have made a collection of moving essential items. Well, they, they, it is without a doubt the preeminent Catholic school in the greater Northwest side of Chicago. <laughs> Carmel is maybe a second and <laughs> Notre Dame's not even close. They know it. They're fully aware. <laughs> and, I, and I might add, you know, one of the benefits that I have personally received from military outreach is I deal with all different denominations. And I'm, I was raised Protestant, uh, but I have, have, have been very much involved with the Catholic parishes who have been strong supporters of military outreach. In fact, I'm involved in another part of what we do is I'm involved with a one-day veterans retreat at the Ballerman Retreat Center in Barrington, which is called Coming Home Retreats. And there, it's free for veterans. Uh, I'm on the staff that started all this, and I've we've been doing it for eight years. We do it about three times a year. It's free of charge for a veteran and a spouse or significant other. And it's a, a day of healing. And it's a, a very, very strong spiritual experience. And it's not, once again, uh, we're not proselytizing. Uh, it's all people are welcome to come. People who need healing. Fantastic. Jenner, I think we could go for about three or four more months here, uh, but I think we, we are going to uh, wrap this up. Uh, uh, if I can say again, thank you so much for, for sharing your experience, your wisdom, your time, your commitment to our country and the people who have served it is awe-inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And, and I might add that every day the good Lord encourages me and our time together today was such an encouragement. So always remember, every day is a great day. I have my faith, my family, and live in the finest country in the world. Absolutely. 100%. Thank you so much again. Uh, I implore everybody listening, if you have a family member who has a military background, needs help, clearly the general has quite a few outlets of opportunity to, to provide good services, the support that they need reach out. Uh, and I implore everyone as well to check out the website, uh, make a financial commitment, be part of the solution, uh, get active. So it's an amazing amount of work that you've done and accomplished with your life so far. And, and as you said, uh, just getting started. So nice work. And uh, again, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you, Patrick and Shelley. Bye. Thank you, General. We also want to thank you, our listeners. Uh, we really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.